book of James, chapter 1. The book of James has many great encouragements uh, for the Christian. There are two things that stand out most, at least to me, out of the book of James. That is to count it all joy in trials, right? Trials, right? That's the book of James. And then the other is faith without works is dead, right? So those two things stand out in the book of James. And we're going to look at that today. Uh, faith without works cannot be called faith at all, right? It's not faith without works. Faith without works is dead. And a dead faith is worse than no faith at all. Faith must work. It must produce. It must be visible. Verbal faith is not enough. Mental faith is insufficient. Faith must be there but it must be more. It must be inspired godly, it must inspire godly action. Throughout all James' epistle to the Jewish believers, James integrates true faith and, and everyday practical experiences by stressing that true faith must manifest itself in the works of faith. Faith endures trials, trials come and go. But a strong faith will face them head on and develop endurance. Faith is more than your words. It is more than knowledge. It is demonstrated by obedience. And it responds to the promises of God. Faith produces a separation from the world and submission to God. It provides us with the ability to resist the enemy and to draw humbly nearer to God. Finally, faith waits patiently for the coming of our Lord. Through trouble, through trial, it stifles complaining. Let's get into the James chapter 1, verse 1. James writes, A bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings, my brethren, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So we see here in, in verse 1, James describes himself as a bondservant. Several of Jesus' disciples often referred to themselves as bondservants. Peter, Paul, James, and Jude referred to themselves in their epistles as bondservants of God. Bondservant in the Greek, trans, in the Greek translation is, is uh, doulos, the word doulos. Now doulos was one who willingly gave him or herself to be a slave to a chosen master. Not just any master, but a good master. A good interpretation of this would be one who has given himself to another's will. And so James is saying here that he is a slave, willingly, not, not by force, not forcibly. He wasn't, he wasn't uh, shackled in, in cuffs and taken captive uh, and forced into slavery, but he willingly gave himself to become a slave, to do whatever the will of God was, whatever, whatever God impressed upon his heart and told him that this is what you need to do, he was a slave to that. 
and did not pull back from that. Now, James is writing to the 12 tribes of Israel, which have been scattered abroad, right? Israel at this time, during this time, they didn't have their own nation. They didn't, although it was in the nation of Israel, they were ruled by others. It wasn't theirs. They were scattered abroad throughout the lands. And so James writes to each of the tribes scattered abroad. Yet more importantly, he writes to the church of Israel. And we ourselves can be included in James's letter as the modern day church. The Spirit impressed upon James's heart to share this message. So let's dive into the message that James has to share with us. In verse 2, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, there's a lot in these three little verses here, right? Uh, let's take them on one at a time. James calls for us as believers to count it all joy when we fall into various trials. What does that mean? What does it mean to count it joy when we fall into various trials? Because we all know what trials are, right? We all know that when we have hard times and things go, aren't really going our way, those are, those are certain trials that we have in life. And, and James calls us to count it joy when we fall into those. You know, yesterday... In fact, uh, since I started studying for this message, it seemed like the trials were like poured on, right? Uh, it seemed like, you know, anytime we're, we as believers, we, we stand for something or we, we, uh, we profess to be something, it's like the enemy goes, oh yeah, let's see. Let's see if that's what you are. And so this whole last couple of weeks were just filled with trials in my, in my personal life uh, here. And, and just yesterday, I went to uh, a city that I belong to, the, the city building department, to pull some permits. And uh, I had been trying numerous times to pull these permits. And so I got there at 3, I think it was about 3.28. And I went up to the counter and um, was looking for the little sign-in sheet and got there and, and I asked the lady, uh, I'm here to sign in to pick some permits up and to, and to pull some permits. And she kindly replied to me, well, we're closed for that. And I said, well, what do you mean you're closed for that? Because it was only 3... 3.28. And she said, well, the time for that is between 8 o'clock in the morning and 3.30, or, and 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And I said, oh, so I missed it by 28 minutes. And she said, yeah, we're sorry. So I gripped my teeth, right? I held my tongue, and I kindly said thank you and walked out the door. Now, what a trial that was for me to be able to, to do that kindly uh, and just say, well, thank you, sorry that I'm late and I I'm uh, going to make sure that I'm here within your time frame next time. Uh, and that's a trial that we go through. Now, is that the trial? Are those the trials? The trials that we have with our vehicles, with our spouses, uh, with our kids? Are those the trials that James calls us to have joy in? When, when we really think about it and we really get down to it, those are everyday trials for us, right? Those are, those are trials that the world even goes through themselves, right? No, no different than that, than, than the, what the world goes through and what we go through. They're the same. So what is it that these, these trials that James calls us to have joy in? Um, if you would, turn to Acts chapter 5, and uh, we will read verse 22. There And we'll see uh, a certain trial that the disciples had gone through. So Acts chapter 5, verse 22, uh, it says, But when 
the officers came and did not find them in prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So when, or sorry, someone came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they sent them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we strictly command you that you not teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with the doctrine and intended to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. Then God, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus Christ, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel for the forgiveness of sins. And we... We are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God had given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one of the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put out the apostles to, I'm sorry, to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many People after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found fighting against God. And they agreed with him, and when they had called, for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer the shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching as the Christ, or preaching Jesus as the Christ. So we see here what a trial this was. The apostles uh, themselves were just simply preaching uh, uh, to Jesus, preaching of Jesus to the people, just sharing the gospel, uh, sharing what had been done, what had happened, sharing about how Christ had risen from the dead. And the Pharisees didn't like that, and so they gathered them up and threw them in prison. And they were in this prison for some time. 
And when that time had come, the Pharisees went to gather them together to get them, to bring them out. And they weren't, they weren't in the prison. They had been removed from the prison. And so the Pharisees then at that point were wondering, well, what happened to the disciples? Where did they go? Uh, what was going on? And so it turned out that the disciples uh, had been uh, preaching in the temple once again. They'd been defying what the Pharisees had asked them to do. And so they went and they gathered the disciples up. And the disciples came in and they were deciding what to do with these disciples who would not listen. They continued the teaching and preaching that they were told not to do. And as they were wondering what to do with them, uh, Gamaliel, one of the uh, wiser of the Pharisees there, said, you know what, just leave these guys alone. Let's see what the Lord does, what God does with this. And if it is of God, it will survive. If it's not, it'll be passed by the wayside. And yet they still couldn't leave it alone. They had to rough them up a little bit. They, it says that they beat them up before they let him go. And they told them not to preach any longer in the city. But yet the disciples left there. And what did they do? They began to have joy. They counted it for joy. Joy that they could be persecuted, right? Joy that they, they, they partook in the sufferings of Christ. Um, the, this is the joy that the Apostle James was talking about uh, for us. Uh, also, we see uh, in, um, in 1 Peter, if you want to turn there, 1 Peter chapter 4. This was uh, men, if you were in the men's Bible study uh, last week, this was one of our verses that we went over. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Peter writes concerning trials. Peter writes, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trials which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the Spirit of God and the God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. So again, we see here out of Peter, Peter instructs us that, that don't think it's strange when we enter into these trials and haven't we had many trials these days, uh, in this day and age, in this last few years? Haven't we seen many trials? Many have come against the church, right? We see even our own governor last year coming against the church and, and really threatening that we close down and we not reopen the church, right? That was a trial, and all of you or most of you were here for it. And you said, you said no, this is, this is a trial that's, that we're going to go through that we're going to endure no matter what happens. And these are the trials that James is talking about. Here in Peter, I love how he says uh, there in verse uh, 12, he says, don't think it's strange concerning these fiery trials which we go through, which happen to you, right? You know, in this day and age and, and in the age to come here, we're going to see more and more trials. I'm, I'm sure of it. As, as the world gets darker as things continue to spiral out of control in our, in our own nation even, uh, we're going to see the trials, things set before us that we're going to have to make decisions on. As, as leaders in the church, as, as Christians, 
like the disciples had to make a decision here in this chapter. Do they obey God or do they obey man? And they chose the greater to obey God. And no matter what the cost, they were going to obey God. You see, they didn't concern or they didn't think that the, the trials that they were going to go through uh, had any comparison to serving their God. There was no comparison at all. They were willing to go through those trials, even to the point of being beat up and, and possible death. They were willing to go through these trials. These are the trials that James is talking about. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, and Luke 6, 22 through 23 are the Beatitudes. You remember the Beatitudes? I'll read them real quick. If you want, you can turn to Matthew there. I'm going to go ahead and read both of them because they, they both speak about the same thing, but they, they say it in different ways that help us to understand. So Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for the righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly great, glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For they, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And Luke chapter 6 verse 22 says it this way. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast you out in your name as evil cast your name out as evil for the son of man's sake rejoice in that day and leap for joy for indeed your reward is great in heaven for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets so we see two two separate or the same teaching but two uh, separate accounts of it as Jesus taught the Beatitudes there. And I love how here in, in Luke, Dr. Luke states it, that jump for joy, right? Be joyful when we enter into these things. Anybody ever talk bad about you? Right? right? You guys all work, right? Somebody at work talks bad about you. I know it. Somebody at work talks bad about me. I know it. When I find out who it is, they're going to be sorry. Right, Tom? Uh, somebody's going to talk bad about you. Somebody's not going to like you. Somebody's going to throw your name out there as evil, as an evildoer. Yet we are to count it as joy when, we, when our name is talked about bad for Christ, right? Oh, that guy, he's always talking about God. I wish he would just be quiet. Or that guy, he's always happy. I just hate how he's always happy. I, I, I don't know what is wrong with him, Right? These are the things that, that James talks about, that we need to count it joy when people talk bad about us like that. When we, when we enter into these trials, these tribulations, when they hold a grudge against us for our beliefs as being Christians and believers, right? When our managers and our bosses, our, our head top employers, when we take a stand to do what's right, and they don't like it, and they end up coming against us for it. We are to count it joy in those times. We are not to pull back or to hide or to, to be in shame or sorrow or, or weep, but we are to hold ourselves in joy during those times. And that's what James is talking about here when he calls us to uh, count it all joy when we enter into these trials. Um, for we know that, that this, this earth is not our home, right? All that we do, 
all the stances that we take and the foundation that we stand on, and, and those is all for the future. It's all because we know that when we get to heaven, it's all going to be for, for the purpose of glorifying God. That's it. And the disciples knew that. When they were beaten and they were sent out, they counted it joy because they realized it was for the furtherance of the gospel, for the glory of God. Verse 3, back in James, if you want to turn back there. Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. How many of you need patience? I know I need patience. Maybe that's why I was tested so much this week uh, in this. Patience. Nobody likes, nobody likes getting patience, right? Nobody likes uh, having to be patient. We, all, we live in a society today, a world today, especially here in California, where it's fast speed. It's, it's high pace. We got to get moving. We got things to do. No time for patience, right? And yet here, James says, all of these trials, all of these testings in your life, they're producing something in you. They're bringing something out. They're drawing something out of you, and that something is patience. That testing is, the testing of your faith is bringing on a patient, patiently waiting for the Lord to do his work in you, right? Not, a, not getting in there when someone says something bad about you, not getting in there and fisticuffs with them and fighting, let the Lord work on them. Be patient with the Lord in the work that he's doing with them and in your life and, and those that are around you and those trials that you're enduring with your kids or your spouse. Be patient there and watch what the Lord will do. James says that testing of your faith produces that patience. You know, it's funny when we take a stand and we decide uh, to stand for righteousness sake, it seems that we get challenged spiritually in that area, doesn't it, right? You, you stand for something and all of a sudden there is that challenge before you. It's like, oh yeah, I just, I remember telling someone about that on Sunday, how I got that under control, and now here I am on Monday having to deal with it again, right? Uh, so many times uh, this week I have been personally challenged, uh, trials for me. But I know as it says in these verses, these three verses, this testing is producing that patience in my life. Um, none of us likes it. None of us likes being patient or having to be patient in what we do. But as we are tried and as we endure these trials and gain this patience, uh, it creates not just a patience in us, but it creates a godly patience in us, right? I mean, there are many worldly people that are patient, that can patiently wait, but for us, it should be different. We should have that godly patience, um, that, that is overflowing, that is willing to go the extra mile when we end up in these situations. Verse 4 says, but let patience have its perfect work. So this is what James is talking about. Let it have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. To be considered perfect when enduring trials. Anybody perfect when enduring trials? Nobody? Good, I'm not alone then. Uh, yet James here says that we endure these trials, and as we keep the faith, the result is perfection in Christ, lacking of nothing, being complete, learning to find joy in the trials as we endure them 
it brings a completeness in our hearts, in our, in our lives. We understand that not allowing these trials to sway our judgment, we will be mature in all things at that point. And that's what we're looking for, to be mature Christians, believers, that aren't shaken by any sort of trial. That if these trials come into our lives, it doesn't cause us to flee, but we can stand firm in them. And that others see that, and that others see, man, look at, look at, look at Joe over there at work. He, he, he's going through these hard times and these trials, but he always seems to be happy. What, what, what is that with him? And we become to be that witness to those around us in the world in sharing the gospel of Christ. Now, if we struggle with that, we should ask for wisdom. Anybody struggle with that? No? No, you guys are good? You all struggle with that? What do we do? How do, how, do we, how do we get past that other than just getting into more trials? Well, we ask for wisdom, right, for the Lord on how to deal with the trials. Lord, give me wisdom on how to deal with this person at work or how to deal with my husband, right? My, my, that's one of my wife's favorite prayers. I don't know why. How to, how to deal with your husband or your wife, how to deal with, with her. Give me wisdom, Lord. And look what James says there in verse 5. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally without reproach, and it will be given to him. But, he, if, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind." You know, we all lack a certain amount of wisdom. No, no one knows everything or how to handle every situation, right? Uh, we all need a little boost of wisdom in our lives. You know, the definition of wisdom is knowledge rightly applied, right? Have you heard that before? Knowledge rightly applied, right? So you know what is right and how to act because you have the knowledge but do you have the wisdom to apply it correctly in the time and the moment when it's needed? Wisdom is something that we should be praying for on a regular basis. Every decision that we make in this life should be made with wisdom from God. So how do we attain wisdom? Well, James here says we simply ask for it. Our faithful God will give it to us liberally without reproach, without holding anything back. It's like he has a bucket of wisdom just waiting for us. Like, come on, ask for it. Ask for it. Okay, here you go. And he's going to pour it upon us. Right? He's waiting for us to ask for it is, is how James writes it here. He, he, he pours it out upon us liberally. It's not like, okay, here's a little sip of wisdom. No, it's I'm going to drench you with wisdom. So much so that you're going you're to know how to handle every situation that comes right in front of you. But are you going to handle it correctly? And that's where we need to apply this wisdom that the Lord has for us. But the key is we must ask for this great wisdom. We must ask for it with faith, knowing that God has it for us, knowing that he is willing to give it to us. For if we doubt that he has wisdom for us, or if we doubt he can give us wisdom for the situations that we're in, James says, he who doubts lacks faith. He is like a wave of the sea. Has anyone been in the ocean during a, a, a really big storm? Like on a boat or ship or 
out there was just a huge storm, like you were in fear for your life. I mean, the waves are just crashing on the bow and crashing into each other and up and down. How about, how about on, a, on a shore? Have you been on a shore and looked out at the ocean and, and just seen the waves just smacking together and, and just, just colliding? It's chaotic, right? There, there's, there's no structure to it. And, and here uh, we, we see that that is what James, the, the picture of, that James is, is relaying here. That, that if you ask for wisdom without faith, without knowing that God is going to give it to you, um, you're, you're, you're like that wave just being tossed and fro around in the sea, right? There, there's no uh, structure. There's no foundation. You're just going to be blown one way and then blown over the other way. You're not going to know how to use that wisdom. You're not going to have anything to do, uh, be able to do with it because you don't have the faith to believe that God can give it to you in the first place. We must ask for wisdom with faith and full confidence that our God is not only faithful, right? Number one, faithful, but two, capable. And three, willing to give us the wisdom that we need for the moment that we're in. The Lord is willing, he is faithful, and he is capable. If we ask knowing that, if we ask with that faith, we will receive it from him. But if not, we will receive nothing. Not one bit of wisdom for the situation. We must ask with faith. In fact, James, if we read on in James chapter 1, verse 7, it says that he won't even receive anything. He says, For let not that, or let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. For he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That's just the fact. James isn't saying that God's unfair here. He's not saying that, that yeah, if, if, you're not, if you're not on God's side, he's not going to give you. No, that's, it's, this is the fact. That a man who, who lacks faith, the knowledge that, of who God is and the wisdom, isn't going to, or the, the ability that God has to give wisdom, that, that man is not going to be able to do anything with the wisdom that God has for him. He's going to be double-minded. Have you ever seen a double-minded man? Maybe some of you are double-minded at some times. I know sometimes I am. It's like, okay, what decision should I make? Should I go over here or should I go over there? And it's like I make the decision and then I'm like regretting. Did I make the right decision? That's double-mindedness, right? Some of you are smiling. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Double-mindedness there. James says that that man who... Uh, doesn't ask with faith is like that double-minded man. He's like, oh, God, help me, help me, God. And then he's over here doing his own thing. And He's like, well, God was going to help you one way, but now you're doing it, so he's going to be hands-off and let you do it, right? That's double-mindedness. Those that cannot make up their mind in life, that don't live a firm life in Christ, but are swayed by every new fad, swayed by everything that the news has to tell them, swayed by every new fearful thing that is put out, double-mindedness. That's all double-mindedness when you're swayed by those things. You don't have that firm foundation because they do not know the truth, because they do not have the faith that is solid as a rock, solid in God. How sad is it to see men and women like this? This is not the way that God desires for us to be. 
Turn to uh, Luke chapter 6. In Luke chapter 6, we see the story of two men, two men that build a house. In Luke chapter 6, uh, verse 47 says, Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you who he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation upon the rock. And when the flood arose and the streams beat vehemently against that house, it could not shake it from its foundation on the rock. But he who heard and did not and did nothing is like a man who builds a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Is this our way of thinking as believers? Which is it? Do we obey and do we listen to the word of God? Or do we just hear it and go and do our own things? Well, Jesus would say here, those that obey the word and take it in and, and, and do it and obey it, those, those single-minded people, right, they, have, they know what the truth is and their mind is on that truth and they listen to it and they obey it and do it. Those are the ones who are like this builder who, who dig deep through all the soft soil of life and they get down to the rock. They get down to the truth of life and they build the foundation on Christ, on that truth. And when the trials come, and the, in, the, in, this, in this scenario, the storm waters rise and they beat against the house. The house stands firm. Your life will be firm and strong. Those trials and those tribulations, they're not going to move you because your foundation is grounded and rooted upon Christ. But those that hear the things of Christ and yet they say, ah, I, I hear what you're saying, but... I know how to build my house. I can just start building right here. And they begin to go about their life and they ignore the things that God has to say to them. The minute the trials come, the minute the waters rise, the minute the first sign of heat, there it goes, out of there. There's no foundation to keep it solid, right? And and so that's what James is saying here about a double-minded man. Where are our minds Are our minds built on the solid rock of Christ, on the word of God? Do we hear the things that he desires to speak to us, and do we obey them and do them? Or are our minds double-minded? Are we over here doing one thing, and then, oh oh my gosh, the news says i got to do this. Are we over here doing this because they said? What is it? We should be like that single-minded man building his house upon the rock, the solid rock of Christ. Having the faith, knowing that God will give us that wisdom that we need. We must get rid of the double-mindedness if we have that. We know the decisions that we make need to be based upon the scriptures that we read in his word. And we need to make those decisions confidently, knowing that God will do the rest. And if we do that, if we make those decisions confidently on his word, knowing that that he cares for us, there's a peace there, right? When, when you're able to make the decisions and just say, okay, this is the way we're going, we're going to have faith that the Lord is going to do the work, 
right? And then that's it. There's a peace about it. We don't have to think about it again. It doesn't have to run through our minds, oh, did we make the right decision? Did we do the right thing? Did we say the right words? Because we know that God is going to bless it. We have that faith, right? And that's what James is talking about, having that faith. Let's move on in verse 9, back in James. You can turn back to James. Verse 9 says, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but, let, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. We are to live humble lives with the things that the Lord has blessed us with. Riches, what are those? What are riches? They can be here one day and gone the next, right? Anybody ever put $100 in your pocket? And then later that day, you, you go to reach it out, and there's like only 50 left. It's like, how did that? Oh, yeah, I had to pay that bill, or I had to do that, right? What are riches? They're, they're here one day, and you know, gone the next. The, the sun raises up, and it burns the grass of the fields, and the flowers wither, and they pass away. But the humble, right? The humble, that's what matters. Turn back to uh, Luke chapter 14, and we'll read a story. Luke chapter 14, verse 7. This is the story of, of humbleness, of being humble. Uh, you've, more than likely, you've heard this story uh, told by Jesus before about taking the lowly position or the lowly seat. In Luke chapter 14, verse 7, Jesus tells a story and he says, So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best place, saying to them, When you are invited to anyone, I'm sorry, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit in the best place, least one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him comes to you, say to you, give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lowly place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowly place, so that when you, or so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher, and you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus gives a parable here of being humble, right? He says, hey, if, if you get invited to a wedding party, don't just go and sit right up in the front, right in front of the bridegroom, or, or like right at the bridegroom's table, where you're in the best 
seat, the best position, because he says, if one more honorable than you, or, or someone who's better friends with the host invites you or comes up to you and says, hey, can you give way for this guy to sit here? It was really intended for him to sit here. And you get up with shame and have to walk to the back because, oh, I'm, I'm not as important as I thought I was, right? He says, don't do that. He says, when you go to this party or these gatherings, he says, take the lowly seat. Just go, go sit in the back somewhere. And when your host who invited you sees you in the back and says, hey, come on, come on, come sit in the front with me. And he brings you up to the front and he places you in the front of the, of the party, of the feast. He says, what glory would that be? How, how great would that be for you, right? To, re, to receive that. What a blessing that would be there to take that humble position first and then be lifted up. And that's what James is saying here. Uh, he says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. If we take that seed of humbleness, if we take that lowly position as believers, as Christians, our glory is in the exaltation from God that we will receive. But the rich, he commands the rich to be humble, to, that, that, they're, uh, that, uh, that they will be uh, exalted in their humiliation. Uh, if those of you that, that the Lord has blessed financially, um, it, it is a position of humbleness that we are to take, that you are to take there. Um, not flaunting what the Lord has given you, because again, riches are here one day and they're gone the next. There's something that doesn't last. But it's the humbleness of the heart that matters, that James is, is speaking to here. Forever, I, I love the, the last verse there. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let us be believers that humble ourselves before our God and before the world, that we allow our God to exalt us, that it would not be us. Let's go on in verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the man. Blessed, blessed. What does blessed mean? Travis, what does blessed mean? Happy, right? I drilled that into the guys in my men's study. To be blessed is just to be happy. It's just to be happy. And so here James is saying, happy is the man who endures temptation, right? Anybody endure temptation? We, we should all be endurers of temptation. Not enduring temptation. We should uh, endure getting through the temptation and, and, and avoiding it. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, right? In that time, in that moment that we pass from this life to the next, and we have endured and, and abstained from the temptations of life, and we have carried the cross, right, to the very end, we have finished well, the crown of life is waiting for us. And James says, that crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But, let, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticements. 
Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, right? We've got no excuses, right? We, we can't, like Adam said, remember when Adam was approached by God in the garden and God said, Adam, what did you do? And he said, it was, it was the woman you gave me, Lord, right? He tried that one and it didn't work with God, right? It, it was all on Adam's shoulders. And so we too cannot say that when we are tempted, oh, oh, I'm tempted by God. God's not, the, not, God's not a tempter. He does not tempt, nor can he be tempted by evil. Nor does God tempt us with anything. Where do our temptations come from? Our temptations come from when we are drawn in by our own desires, right? When our own enticements. Um, I love it how, uh, I believe it was uh, J. Vernon McGee. Anybody remember J. Vernon McGee? He used to talk about temptation and and, uh, and what temptation was. And he used to say, you know, if you're out at the beach, sitting in a, a beach chair, and you're just, just enjoying the beach, and a, a seagull comes flying by and kind of lands on your head, right? And you, and you go, you shoo it off. Well, that's temptation, right? And you, you shoot temptation away, right? Temptation's gonna come in our lives, and we need to shoo it away, right? But he says, and, and he says there's no sin there. He says, but if that seagull comes and flies and kind of lands on your head and begins to build a nest and you don't do anything about it, he says, ah, that's temptation that you are allowing to happen, right? Then it is sin, right? When that temptation comes before us, do we immediately shoo it away? Oh, I'm, I'm, right? Do we meet? Whoa, gone, right? Guys, girls, when that temptation comes before us, do we immediately say, whoa, I got to get out of here? Or do we let it build that nest, right? And that's what James is saying here, that that temptation it does not come from God. It comes from our own desires and our own hearts and our own flesh. And he says when that temptation and that enticement, that desire conceives, right? The, the picture there is a picture of a woman giving birth or conceiving and giving birth. When, 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 when that little bit of temptation, that seed gets planted in our minds, it's like, oh, yeah. I, I can handle this. I, I got this. this then I got this temptation under control. But then it, it conceives in our mind. It begins to grow, right? As, as, a, as a child uh, that is conceived begins to grow in the belly, eventually it's going to get large enough to where it's born, right? And James here says, in that same way, sin in our lives and temptation in our lives, the minute it is conceived, it begins to flourish and grow and get larger and larger. And before we know it, it's full grown, and it's in the time for it to be born is there. And when it is born, it brings forth death there in verse 15. We must avoid temptation as believers, as Christians. No, the Bible says no man can pick up fire in his hands and not be burned, right? Anyone, anybody try that? You know, I was camping uh, last weekend, I think it was last weekend, and uh, I had my little my niece and my nephew, and they're very, very small. And, uh, and I was showing them how to start a campfire with flint and steel, and they were just amazed at the sparks and whew, the fire. And we were talking about fire and how it burns you, and I was just kind of rolling my hand through the fire. It's like, no, I can touch fire, but we can't really, right? If we leave our hand there long enough, it's going to burn. The Bible says no man can pick up fire in his hands 
and not be burned, right? And temptation is the same way. No man can handle temptation and not be burned, not give in to it. We must, as Christians, as believers, be able to abstain from that temptation that our own flesh and the enemy sets before us and not even give it place in our, in our hearts and our minds. We must flee it. For in the end, we know when it is full grown, it will produce death in our lives, right? It will draw us away from life everlasting into death. Verse 16, do not be deceived, James says. So don't be deceived here, my brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shade of turning. So James says, don't be deceived here. These temptations don't come from God. They're not from above. Only good things. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, from our God and Father. And from him, there is no variation or shadow of turning. Now, I had to ask myself, and I was thinking about this, what does that mean? There is no variation or shadow of turning, right? What, what was that? God, God is good, isn't he? Isn't God good? All the time, God is good, right? And here where James says there is no variation or shadow of turning, there, right? My, my shadow, you go out in the sun, you look down, you see your shadow. What does your shadow do? It mimics you, right? Your shadow, if you turn, your shadow turns, right? If you move, you put your arms up, you wave, your shadow, your shadow copies you from the sun. And what James is saying here is there's not even a, a sense of his shadow turning, his shadow changing, right? God is good, and he will always be good. Every good gift we get comes down from the Father above. And there is no variation in that. God will never change. It will always be the same. Verse 18, back in James. Of his own will, he fought, or he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We have been created by him for good works, as it says in Ephesians 2.10, right? We all know Ephesians 2.10. We are his first works, or a sense of his first works. He created us for these works. He created us to do good, to endure temptation. Verse 19, so, that, so then, my, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So James says, let every man, every brother, and sisters included, let everyone be, be swift to hear, hear with the ears, right? Be swift to hear what the Lord is doing. Be slow to speak. Don't, don't, just, don't just blurt it out. Be slow and slow to wrath there. You know, one of my brothers, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you which one, He's not here right now, though. Uh, one of my brothers, he used to get so angry and mad as a, as a kid when we were young. And he, Granted, he was the middle brother, so he got picked on from the lower end and picked on from the higher end. Uh, but he would get so angry and so mad, and he would get in trouble all the time. And my mom would actually make him write this scripture down. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
And she would make him write it every time he got in trouble. You'd have to write a whole paper, a whole page of every line. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I remember that. And, I, and, 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 and it, it did well for him, right? Because you all know him now. It did well for him. Now things go bad and wrong. And it's just like, eh, oh, well. Oh, well. Doesn't matter, right? The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Do we have wrath in our hearts? Do we have anger? Do things in, in this life really get us going? I know for me, I'll be honest, I, they do for me. And, and I struggle with that one. You know, as believers, we need to make that a focus. That the things in this life, that they're not causing wrath in us. Because that wrath, that, what is wrath? It's loss of self-control, right? That loss of self-control doesn't produce the righteousness of God. We can get angry. We can get, we can get mad at things. In fact, Jesus got angry and he got mad and upset, right? When he was in the temple, when he saw his people, God's people being abused, he was very angry at that point. So anger is not the issue. It's wrath that's the issue there, a loss of control. And James says that loss of control in man does not produce the righteousness of God. We must be fully in control of who we are, of the, of the anger that we have in our hearts and our minds, of our physical functions. We must be in full control of that, James says. Verse 21, therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflowing of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word of God, which is able to save your souls. We must set aside all filthiness, all, all wickedness in our lives. We must set that stuff aside because it doesn't produce the righteousness of God. That stuff is not going to help us become better believers, become stronger Christians, become better proclaimers of his gospel. None of that will. We must, we must get rid of it and put it away and lay it aside, James says. And we must pick up the implanted word of God. I love that, the implanted word. This word these words are not just words in a book, right? They've been implanted in our hearts. They've been put into our minds, planted in there. We must pick them up. We must act upon them and fulfill them and be obedient to them. They're implanted in us by God and they're able to save our very souls. Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. We got, we've got to be doers of the word, James is saying here, right? We, we, we cannot be Christians who come to church on Wednesdays and Sundays and live the rest of the week like the world, right? Like, like we didn't even hear Sunday's message, right? I asked the guys on Monday night when we were at men's study, I said, hey, what did pastor teach about on Sunday? Uh, 
we couldn't remember, right? We must remember these things. We must, uh, we must take them to heart and, 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 and implant them in, in our hearts. We must be doers of the word and not just hearers. And, and the guys are doers of the word. I Trust me. I, I, I harp on them a little bit, but these guys love the Lord. And, and I love the fact that we can get together on Monday nights in our groups. And it, it is an awesome time of studying his word. Any of you guys that aren't in a Monday night study, I encourage you, get into a Monday night study. Be a hearer, an additional hearer of the Lord on Monday nights. I would encourage you for that. But, but here James says, be a doer of the word and not just a hearer only. We must do it. We must act upon it. We must take the things that we are taught and apply them to our lives, our everyday lives and the things that we do, our workplaces, our homes, uh, driving on the roads, Whatever it is, we must apply them in our lives. Because he says, to be a hearer of the word only is like a man who goes and looks in the mirror and says, oh, yeah, you know what? I need to fix that. And I, oh, man, I missed some shaving down here. And ladies, oh, I got an eyebrow that's going like this. I got to pluck that, right? And you go away and you just forget about that stuff. You're just like, oh, I forgot, right? That's, that's it's like you got to remember what you, what you learned. You got to take it and remember it. And James is saying, if you're, if you're not, if you're just a hearer and you're not a doer, you're like that person that goes and looks in the mirror and they're like, oh yeah, and you walk away and you're just like, I forgot what kind of, what I, what I just looked at. I forgot the kind of man that I'm in. I, I love this because if we are to be Christian men, we are to remember that, right? If we're going to be doers of the word, we have to remember that. We have to know what kind of men we are. So what a great illustration this is that we, we look in the mirror, we remember the type of men that we are, that we're to be believers. We're to be good fathers, good mothers. We're to be uh, good sons and daughters. We're to be good spouses to our wives, to our husbands. Those are the type of men and women we're to be. We're not to forget that, but we're to be that. Verse, excuse me, <coughs> verse 25. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not forgetful, not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. What does blessed mean? Happy. You want to be happy? And be happy in life? Look into the perfect word. The law of liberty. Don't be a forgetful hearer, but be a doer of the word. And happiness awaits. Verse 26. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. And to close, verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. True religion, a true religion, a true relationship with God there, James says, to visit orphans and widows. Why? Why is that? 
What do they have to offer you? What do, what do, what do orphans have to offer you? Nothing. What do widows have to offer you? Nothing. True religion, doing it out of the goodness of your heart, of our hearts, right? Do we give without expecting anything in return? Do we help those that can't help themselves? Do we do it with the right heart? That is true religion, James says. That is a true relationship with God, with Jesus Christ. Is doing things for others, is, is, is helping those that have less than you and expecting nothing in return. And keeping oneself unspotted from the world. How important is that as a believer? We, we, we cannot profess Christ out of the right side of our mouth and profane out of the left side. The world will look at us and just shake their head, right? And yet I know many people that profess to be believers, and I'm sure you do, that do that very same thing. They profess to love God and Jesus Christ and Him, yet their lives are spotted as the world is spotted. We must abstain from the spots of the world. They, we should have no... Uh, you know, it is said we're, we, we live in the world, but we are not of the world, right? That's what the scripture says. We, we live in this world, but we're not of the world. We're sojourner, sojourners here. So we need to make sure that we are not taking on the spots of the world, the, the desires of the flesh, the temptations, that we're not falling into that as believers. And that is true religion, relationship with Jesus Christ, that we abstain from the spots of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come, thank you, Lord, for this uh, message tonight through the book of James, chapter 1, Lord. Uh, Father, there was so much there for us, Lord, to, to take home tonight, Lord, uh, as, as you have set the mirror before us now, Father God, and we have seen the reflection upon it, Lord. We have seen the things that you require of us, Lord, to not fall into temptation, to count it joy when we enter into various and strange trials in our life, to hold our tongue and have it in control, to not give in to wrath or anger. Lord, all of these things you have set before us and challenged us in, Father. I pray that we would take them home tonight and the rest of this week, Lord, and we would ponder them and think of them, Lord, that we would not forget the kind of men and women that we are when we walk out these doors, Lord God, but that your spirit would continue to minister to us, Lord, that we would be complete and whole and lacking nothing, Lord, that you would grant us wisdom, Lord God, knowledge rightly applied this week, Father for the trials and the tribulations that are set before us this week, Lord God, that we would be faithful to you, Lord, and that you would use us, Lord, as you intended to use us, Father, that we would be your first fruits, Lord God, and Lord, that we would be a fruit so sweet to the world 
that they would be willing to take a bite, Lord. And they would be willing, Lord, to come and to meet with you, Father. Lord, I thank you for this night. I pray that you would bless uh, the rest of this night, Lord, the fellowship. My brothers and sisters here, just bless their lives this week, Father God. We thank you. We give you praise in Jesus' name.